This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. I'd like to welcome you all to the Australian Museum and to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which the Australian Museum stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. My name is Sue Saxon, I'm a creative producer here at the museum and I'm very pleased to welcome you to this third session in the Lunchtime Conversation series, exploring Australians who've shaped our nation and who feature in the 200 Treasures of the Australian Museum exhibition in our award-winning Westpac Long Gallery. I trust you've all had a good look at that gallery and if you haven't and you don't have plans for this afternoon, please spend some time there. It's very warm and we have many objects to keep you busy all afternoon. So over the past couple of weeks, we've received really precious insights into the extraordinary life and achievements of Tom Keneally and Charles Perkins, with the promise still to come of hearing from exemplary Australians across medicine, art and architecture. But today, we have a really special event with Dr. Terence Percival AM, who was a key member of the visionary CSIRO WLAN team who invented high-speed Wi-Fi in 1992. And he'll be revealing the journey that led to this magical invention that has changed all our lives. Today, Dr. Terry Percival is joined in conversation by Australian Museum Director and CEO, Kim McKay. She was appointed to the director's role in April 2014, and of course, is the first woman to hold this position in the museum's 190-year history. You may um, have noticed the impressive transformation program that she has led, initiated, and which includes free general admission for children, enshrining that into government policy, constructing new award-winning spaces such as the Crystal Hall Entry Pavilion and Westpac Long Gallery, and establishing the Australian Museum Centre for Citizen Science. She'll also be leading the new 57 million restoration of the museum, so that's a very exciting project, Project Discover, coming up soon. Please um, hold your questions until the end. I'm sure you'll have a few and there'll be an opportunity. But in the meantime, please join me in welcoming Kim McKay and Dr. Terry Percival. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome again. Uh, back to the Australian Museum. It's good to see uh, the people who've bought the series tickets uh, to these lunchtime conversations come each week. Thank you so much for doing that. And to those of you who are here for the first time, welcome to you as well. And, and uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy this amazing conversation today. You know, when you think about Wi-Fi and how it's changed our lives and changed the world, and here at the Australian Museum, we have free public Wi-Fi. And it's really interesting because uh, the young boys at Sydney Grammar next door, in years seven and eight, they're allowed to come in here at lunchtime. Um, and uh, they used to come in here just for the hot chips. <laughs> and now they come in, in here for hot chips and free Wi-Fi. <laughs> and they're obsessed. You know, they're on those phones all the time, those devices that we can't seem to get out of our hands. So this... Uh, conversation I think is going to be very revealing for all of us on a number of levels. Firstly, I, I've got to admit that I am not a technophobe at all. Um, you know, I'm severely challenged by technology and uh, yet when you meet someone like Terry Percival and understand the level that he and the team at the CSIRO were working on and leading the world. So we're going to, it, a lot is going to be revealed to us today. I have a little introduction first for you, Terry. CSIRO's wireless invention lies at the heart of what is now the most popular way to connect computers without wires. It's used in offices, public buildings like ours, homes and coffee shops, where it's just commonly known as the Wi-Fi hotspot. The invention emerged from the CSIRO's earlier pioneering work in radio astronomy, but in particular from the efforts of a dedicated interdisciplinary project team. In the 1990s, researchers John O'Sullivan, Terence Percival, Graham Daniels, Diethel Mostry and John Dean created the technology for the high-speed wireless delivery of data between devices like computers and mobile phones over a network. 
The team's work made the wireless local area network as fast and powerful as the cabled solutions of the time and forms the basis for the wireless networking technology now used in billions of devices worldwide. And when we were chatting earlier, Terry, you said you think it's about 10 billion devices now carry their technology. These Australian researchers thus ushered in the age of high-speed, 24-7 wireless connectivity we now take for granted. By 2016, the CSIRO had licence agreements worth more than $500 million with 28 companies worldwide. Now, Terence Percival was a member of that groundbreaking team. He is an electrical engineer and telecommunications expert who has directed projects at many of Australia's leading information technology labs. In addition to the CSIRO, he has worked with OTC Australia, that's Overseas Telecommunications, right? And most recently, uh, NICTA, which is the National Information and Communication Technologies Australia. Now, after completing his studies, I think you did engineering at uh, Sydney Uni, yeah. Terry spent several years contributing to the design and construction of major telescopes, including the Fleur's Synthesis Radio Telescope, the Australia Telescope at Parks and Narrabri, and the Very Large Telescope Array, the world's most advanced radio instrument being built in the New Mexico desert. And that was, of course, featured in the film Contact, starring Jodie Foster, for those of you who remember the Very Large Array. Across his career, Dr Percival has received numerous local and international awards, including the prestigious 2012 European Inventors Award, which I love that Australians received that. It's just um, like the Eurovision Song Contest, isn't it, <laughs> when you gate-crash into the European awards like that? He was elected a Fellow of the Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering in 2012 and was made a member of the Order of Australia in 2014. In 2016, with the team leader, John O'Sullivan, Terry Percival was granted the World IT Service Association's Eminent Persons Award. They are only the fifth and sixth people to ever receive this award. So please welcome Terry Percival. Now I'm just going to skip over the early part of your career for a minute, but I'll get back to that. And uh, start in 1991 when you joined the CSIRO, um, it wasn't really too much after that time that the first significant breakthroughs in Wi-Fi technology were made. Um, when you began with the CSIRO, did you have any idea that you'd be working on one of the modern wonders of our time? Thanks, Kim. I think when we started, we knew that mobile computing was coming. We had just purchased the first three laptops, the first laptop I'd ever seen computers, which were about the size of a modern big laptop, but they had a 1.4 megabyte floppy disk, if you remember, little floppy disk, and a printer port and a serial port for the mouse. And that was the only way you could get data in and out of it. Oh, and the display was monochrome, and it ran a processor at 16 megahertz, which is about a 1,000 times slower than what you can get today. So it was interesting. But, and this, I might add, was before the invention of the World Wide Web. It was just before that. So we saw these as interesting and we thought there'd be a future. But what happened was as we went a few years into the project, we suddenly started to see mobile computing and little handheld devices coming. And that's when we really knew that we had a tiger by the tail. And, and you must have known at that time that you had to speed up yourselves to be the first because there were about 20 people around the world or 20 organisations working on similar technology. Yes, we found that there were some early products out there and um, they were running very slow. They were running at a megabit per second or two megabits per second. There was no standard and they were large, power-hungry. We called them soap on a rope because what you did, you plugged one part into the computer and then you had this cable coming on and you had this big lump sitting on the top of the, of the screen or sitting on top of your computer. So there was, there was a bit out there, but to us it just didn't look like the future that we envisaged. We wanted something small, portable and low power. So when you say the future we envisaged, was this the team of the five of you sitting around having a glass of red wine on a Friday night saying, what's the future we envisage? 
I think it was it was us and a few of the um, commercially oriented people in CSIRO. We we had workshops, corporate retreats, those horrible things. Ours were actually quite fun because we were looking at the future, yeah. and we said, you know, what's it going to look like? And at that time, no one really knew the concept of a wireless LAN as we know it today. It was all lots of whiteboarding and, well, would you put a hub there? Would you put something in the ceiling? How would it work? What would you do with it? So let's step back a little bit. You know, to get to be part of that team at the CSIRO meant you had to have had some pretty stellar experience in the lead-up. What, what got you there to be one of those researchers? Yes, I think it was my... my um, degree at Sydney University. I did my postgraduate degree at Sydney University on an instrument called the Fleur's Telescope, which I kicked two, two buttons, sorry, um, is shown up here. In fact, I've labelled it Badgeries Creek Airport <laughs> because, in fact, that, that little bit of uh, road there was an airport built at Badgeries Creek during World War II, an emergency landing strip at, actually at Badgeries Creek. The Nancy Bird Walton Airport is about a kilometre down the road from that, but this was the telescope that we built at Sydney University. It's an array of 68 antennas. Um, you can see there's 32, 32, and there's some way out in the distance. So that was the sort of work we were doing. And these telescopes are large and distributed systems. This one is the one in New Mexico. When all the antennas move up and down on railway tracks, they move about 30 kilometres down that railway track. And um, I also had worked on the Australia Telescope, which we built at Narrabri in the mid-80s, uh, which only had six antennas. Had you been always interested in telescopes and space and tracking wireless signals and radio signals? I had always been interested in understanding how radio communications worked, or trying to understand it, and we had um, sort of looked at it, and when I came across radio telescopes, I thought, wow, this is amazing. You're detecting a signal that's incredibly faint and it's coming from hundreds of millions of light years away. So that's, that's a pretty big challenge. You've not only got to just detect if a signal's there, but you've got to map it. And I think recently we've seen pictures of the black hole that was mapped by this latest array, and you're making detailed maps of events that are happening billions of years ago, and so far away it's unimaginable. So that that is an incredibly challenging job, which I really liked, building sensitive receivers. And I think I just put this slide in there to show that's sort of the complexity we're talking about. This is the early prototype that of one of the one part of this receiver. That, by the way, is actually me. <laughs> it's embarrassing. Uh, no, it's all right. You're not wearing the shorts. It's that's okay. All right. <laughs> that's Jerry and yes, um, a few other people. Uh, but just out of interest, that's the sort of complexity of that little stuff we're showing there, that's a receiver, and each of those boxes has something like that inside it. So uh, the sort of complexity you've got is, is mind-boggling. So as a little boy, were you obsessed with electronics and pulling things apart and putting them back together? Uh, I think I was born with the engineer's knack. I was obsessed with pulling things apart. Yeah. Putting them back together I was not good at. <laughs> so, yes, I'm... I think we'll skip over that bit. So, you know, we're looking at those very complex diagrams you put up yeah. there and behind those are these complex algorithms to make all of this work. For the lay person, which I guess is most, probably most of us here, could you give us a simple explanation of how it works? Okay. <laughs> So how does Wi-Fi work? I think the, the first thing we have to remember is there's a lot of confusion out there. There's a system called Bluetooth, which most of us know, and that's for communicating between devices over a short range. So it's designed to go up to 10 metres at low bit rate, low power. You get your microphone to talk to that, or you get um, your, your wireless keyboard to talk to your computer. Whereas Wi-Fi is about connecting a device that's got significant computing power, like a phone or a laptop, to something out in the cupboard which is connected to the internet. So it's that freedom, that mobility, and you can go into a coffee shop and you can use it. So what it's about is transmitting that data without a cable, without plugging a cable into the wall. What it has to do is transmit lots of packets of data to and from the internet, and there's you know, millions of packets of data going back and forward when you're doing even something quite simple on your phone or your laptop. So Wi-Fi has to find a way to do that. But 
there's many challenges. One is there's Walls. 50 people okay. trying to do it at the same time. All right, yeah. And so the Wi-Fi hub's got to allocate the data rates between all the people here. It's got to do corrections. It's got to make sure that the data is actually correct. You don't want to lose packets. So that's the first problem. The second problem with Wi-Fi is you can go slow. In a room like this, it's easy to go at a megabit per second because you're sending a signal out. It may bounce off the wall. Uh, radio waves bounce. They bounce off the wall. They bounce off you and me. They'll bounce off the table, the wall, the cupboards, trucks going past the street. And what happens is they bounce off and they come back. So you may send a message, the first word in the message, and it gets to the Wi-Fi base station. Maybe you know, three words later, suddenly that word's come back because it's bounced off another wall. And this is the problem that you really face in Wi-Fi. The analogy we like to use is, if you imagine a bathtub full of water, nice and still, you start a tap dripping. You get a little drip, you get these ripples coming out but they bounce off the end of the bathtub and come back and you get these interference patterns. And the same thing happens with radio waves, but when you're trying to go at 100 megabits per second, they're coming back and forward at such a speed that it's total gibberish that what you're actually getting. So it's overcoming those sort of problems that we had to solve to make Wi-Fi work fast and reliably. Everyone's eyes have glazed over already. <laughs> now what I love about the team you all brought different experiences and disciplines to come together to do this extraordinary work. There was experience in radio astronomy, system design, physics, mathematics, signal processing, network protocols and satellite communications, um, all coming together to try and work out the solution. And it, I said earlier it was 20, it was actually 22 other major communications companies around the world were trying to overcome the same problem. So what were the difficulties being encountered? I mean, because you decided to go much faster in, in terms of the speed that you were looking for the device, the Wi-Fi device, to mm. deliver, weren't you? Yes. We were, other companies around the world were trying to go maybe up to 10, 20 megabits. 25 megabits was a magic number in those days. And they were doing that by what we call an incremental approach. They were looking at what they currently had little bit of a tweak here, bit of a tweak there, change some, some of the algorithms a little bit and try and go faster. We said, no, nah, we've got to make a quantum leap. We've really got to go you know, 10, 20 times faster than that. So we had to go back to a blank sheet of paper and say, how do we overcome these problems? By the way, can I just go back a bit? And not only do we have a team with different skills, certainly five different personalities. And uh, that made, made for a... Interesting interactions. There was the deep thinker, there was the uh, interrupter, there was the, oh, that's wrong, there was the, let's get on with it, and I won't tell you which one I am. <laughs> so we had a lot of personalities there, which really makes the team dynamics um, work well. I, I always think that, that if, you're, if you have a team working together, having different types, if you're all of the same type of personality, you're just going to get reinforcement. Yeah, They're yeah, not that's challenging. Right. That's right, and I so think that having helped. that diversity yeah. is really great. Yeah. yeah, so that really made us think about these things and use some of the techniques that we brought from other fields, the work in radio astronomy uh, and signal processing, combined with the more traditional work from satellite communications. So putting that together, we were really looking at how you know you could do it again, split it up as it's we said in the video, but which again is showing its age now. Um, yeah. It said three billion devices; it's now ten. Um, but previously we'd built hardware. Um, John O'Sullivan, who was the other speaker in that video, had previously built um, what's called a fast Fourier transform integrated circuit, which performs uh, the Fourier algorithm in hardware. It was the first time anyone had built a dedicated chip to do that. It was built for signal processing, uh, for audio processing, and um, also was used in SETI, the search for extraterrestrial That integrated. was a bit of a game changer, yeah. having that algorithm, yeah. wasn't it? Having, having the ability to build that algorithm in hardware and make it go really fast was, was really gave us the edge because we knew how to do that, whereas other people didn't think it was possible. People had done it in software, but it ran a thousand times slower than you needed to do the way we were doing it. So that, that really helped. So the phenomenal growth that's happened in mobile technology from phones, laptops, the game consoles people use, 
it wouldn't have happened without the invention of your Wi-Fi technology. And John O'Sullivan, who led the researchers, described the wireless LAN as, quote, a glorious example of blue sky research solving a problem with much wider application than the immediate. Now, why do you think the CSIRO were willing to take a risk on this research and, and why this idea and not others? I mean, the CSIRO we know is constrained at different times by government funding. And so what was it that made them latch onto this? Yeah, what happened was interesting. The new CEO in CSIRO, John Stocker, came in in 1990 and he was feeling constrained, as I'm sure the museum knows, about government funding continually producing. Oh, no, I never have a problem. Never happened, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so he wanted to do some new things, and he put a corporate tax across CSIRO. He said, right, I'm taking away 1% of everyone's budget, and we're going to put it in a pool, and we want proposals for that. Um, and so we did that, and our division put in the proposal to build wireless communications, not just for wireless land, but also for wireless access, wireless links, and we won the money. Um, I wasn't at the meeting, but when this was announced, apparently the um, other people who lost the money were iridescent, was the word that was used to describe. <laughs> uh, a, because they'd lost the money, but B, because it went to us guys who weren't real scientists, because we didn't wear white lab coats, we didn't have test tubes, we just did this sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, it, was, it was interesting that it was a, a good success story in that, and he, was, he actually repeated that um, that process three years later and funded some more research in telecommunications. So like anything sort of worth doing, it's always mired in contro controversy at some level. And of course the CSIRO lodged a provisional patent in 1992 with an American patent granted in 96. And we were talking earlier and you said those patents only exist for 17 years, right? In the late 1990s, the Global Standards Body for Electrical Engineering the IE, what do you call it? The IEEE Institute. The IEEE. I'd like to go, E! Incorporated CSIRO's patent into an industry-wide standard for WLAN. However, there were stumbling blocks and over several years before the CSIRO finally saw the financial dividends of its work. Um, so firstly, trying to find a commercial partner for your work was difficult, wasn't it? Yes. We, when we had our ideas and we thought we'd come up with a solution, we knew that we wouldn't be able to just manufacture it because we're a research organisation, so we wanted to get into a collaboration with a big industry player who would take our ideas forward. So we went around the world visiting the big boys. We talked to Hewlett-Packard, IBM, 3Com, Apple, Sony, NEC, NCR, AT&T, DEC, Tandem Computers, among others, and we... Um, pitched our ideas. We said, this is the future, that's wireless. Um, the result was somewhat disappointing. We were told by several companies, wireless, oh, this is just a fad that'll go away. No worry. No one wants to go that fast, 100 megabits, you've got to be kidding. Um, then they looked at our potential solution. Way, that's way too complex, it'll never work. It's too difficult, take too much power. In fact, I was even laughed at almost in one presentation by the head of a research lab in um, Bristol, which we won't mention any names, but interesting thing is that year, seven years later I met Colin and he apologised. He said, you were right. So I feel much better that. must feel good. That, that <laughs> felt good. Um, so in the end we couldn't basically get someone to work with us. So what we had to do was go ahead and build a prototype. And over seven years, uh, we had to build prototypes. We built this test bed that the photo was of. That was the first Wi-Fi box, if you like. Then we built a second prototype. And again, it was smaller. And handsome young chap, isn't he? <laughs> and uh, then no one was interested still. We published lots... After this time, we published lots of papers saying this is how it works, this is what it does, this is the performance. Still didn't get any interest. We built it even smaller. And we still couldn't get anywhere, so the only way to get a commercial outcome was to build a startup company because CSIRO was getting sick of us um, doing this. It, it, we told you it would never work. And so a startup company, then in 1999, the IEEE adopted the standard, which was basically our patent and the prototypes we'd built. And um, then the company built a little prototype there. It 
displayed it at a trade show in 2000 in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, almost immediately it, the company got bought out by Cisco for uh, $290 million and became the first Wi-Fi, really fast Wi-Fi product shown there. So that was a long story, but that's how we got there. But the CSIRO had offered agreements for the Wi-Fi technology to be used in products by anyone on fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory terms. And none of the leading tech firms you mentioned wanted to do so. So what precipitated the decision by the CSIRO to sue Buffalo Tech Company in 2005? And how did this drive the successful out-of-court settlements with the 14 other companies, including Intel, HP, Dell, Netgear and Microsoft? Yes, it was tricky. Once the standard had been ratified, people started making products. So being a naive young engineer, I thought, well, I've got a patent that covers that, so we'll just go get some royalties out of them. First lesson I learned, no one gives you money unless they really, 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 really have to. And so... Yeah, I, I, that's what my bank manager has said to me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, unfortunately, that's true. So we had to chase people, obviously. Uh, but first of all, we had to convince the CSIRO board that it was worth investing millions of dollars in mounting a lawsuit. So we did that in the end. That's another long, interesting story, but um, we'll, we'll go through that. Then you go through the polite letter. So you have to send an official polite letter to the, each of the companies that's selling a product. That doesn't get you anywhere. You send a less polite letter. Then you ask for a meeting. Then you get your solicitors to send a letter. Then they'll all meet with you. If it comes from a large, reputable US law firm, they'll all meet with you. But Buffalo didn't. They refused to acknowledge the letters. They refused to agree to a meeting. So they were an obvious target to sue them. Um, Buffalo's headquarters in the US, fortunately, was in Texas. So we sued them in the Eastern District Federal Court of Texas. Scary stuff, really, for a bunch of Aussies going... I mean, I know you had US lawyers who were guiding you through this, but taking on a tech company like Buffalo at the time and being in the US legal system, it's intimidating. Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> uh, what, what happened, was, which made it more interesting, was Buffalo, you know, we took them to court. We won an order against them from the, the judge. It was a pretty low-key trial. And then suddenly, uh, CSIRO received a raft of countersuits. Uh, we were sued by all the big names you just mentioned in California. They all said, we're suing you because we believe you're about to sue us. <laughs> and that's when it really got interesting because you got the biggest companies in the world suing you. Um, fortunately, we were able to get the cases transferred back to Texas. All the cases went to Texas because the judge, our argument was the judge had already seen it all, so they didn't need to re-educate the judge. And uh, we had to start a major lawsuit. So the first thing you've got to do is you've got to be prepared to spend a lot of time on an aeroplane and in Texas. I don't know why I keep hitting the wrong button, sorry. Um, so there's the court building in um, Tyler, Texas. That's me about to go into the lion's den in front of Leonard Davis, the chief judge of the federal court, um, who is an intimidating man, um, not quite as intimidating as the uh, 17 lawyers on the other side who were there. Each company had one or two lawyers. Um, so it's, it's interesting, but why did we win, I think, is the question. The answer is we did everything by the book when it came to the patent. First thing we did was 200,000 pages of documents. This is uh, what used to be the first bank of Th National Bank of Tyler, Texas. It was vacant. We rented it for three months. It was next to the courthouse. That was our headquarters. We had a good legal team of our own, 20 lawyers and expert witnesses of various types, not to mention the paralegals who some reason didn't get in this photo. Um, so it was certainly a... Uh, an interesting case, and in the end, uh, it was like the ten green bottles on the wall. As the case progressed, the evidence was given. After three or four days, companies started to settle. And the interesting thing, the jury was sitting there, but they were seeing the number of lawyers on the opposition side in the courtroom was dropping because companies were settling. 
and by the end of the week there was only half the number of lawyers sitting there from the opposition and we were all smiling. <laughs> so uh, over that weekend, in fact, all the other companies settled. The, re the reason they settle is that um, they know they can settle for a reasonable amount. The jury may, in fact, come out with a much, much bigger amount. So, which, which is extraordinary. It, mm. Yes, the last thing you ever want in the States is a jury trial because... Yeah, they can. <laughs> yeah, for lots of reasons. But um, so that $500 million that the CSIRO has secured in um, royalties since then... Now, your team didn't get that money, did they? Uh, no, not quite. You're told by my suit. <laughs> Which, you know, I, I mean, is extraordinary. You think about it in Australia that um, you were all employees of the CSIRO at the time. And while I think you said you did get a little bonus... A reasonable bonus. A reasonable bonus, which, thank God, yeah. which was not negotiated up front, which is even better, I think, yeah. that the CSIRO was sensible enough to, yeah. to give you all a bonus. Um, but that $500 million has actually gone into a fund, as we heard earlier, for young scientists. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, half the money went into CSIRO general revenue, if you like, and the other half went into what's called the Science and Industry Endowment Fund, which is an interesting fund. It was set up 85 years ago. Uh, the Commonwealth Government at the time must have had a bonus, had a bumper year. They gave £100,000 to CSRO to set up this fund to help young researchers um, and you know, other worthy causes in the scientific industry. Unfortunately, no one put any other money into it, so it disappeared fairly quickly and it had just been sitting around with a few dollars left in it until this money came in and then CSRO put $200 million straight into the fund. And this fund has been used to fund a number of you know, young, early career researchers. It's funded some research areas, some chairs at universities. And what I think is really good is that it's actually activated the fund, whereas some people have actually put in personal donations to the fund. And recently, the New South Wales government put in $10 million to the fund. They thought it was such a good thing. And the fund goes for, obviously, due diligence in processes to make sure that the money goes to you know, very deserving causes. So that, that's been a good outcome of this. It, ha it sure has. Did the CSIRO learn anything through the, the legal battle and the court case of in, you know, to ensure it protects its inventions in the future? I think it's been an interesting process for CSIRO and I think it's scared a lot of people. So it's, you know, they had a cup, they were pursuing another court case at the time which didn't get very well result, didn't get good results. So. I'm not sure that it's really had the impact that I would have liked to have seen because it is scary to go through that process. And I think what we didn't mention, Kim, was 14 companies were in that first court case, but there have been four other court cases since then to get the extra money. And again, they've all been settled at the last minute. In fact, I've cancelled several trips to the US the day before the day I was due because to fly they, out. Because they were settled. Fantastic. So I mentioned earlier that your work has been recognised internationally. And of course, the wonderful European uh, inventive recognition. I think we have a clip of yeah, that. Yes, we've got, we've got a clip of this. And this is, I must add, I felt we got out of the blue a letter from the European Patent Office inviting us to Copenhagen. Uh, and I thought I was into something like a cross between the bridge and Borg and Nordic Noir because I was in Copenhagen and at the ceremony the presenter was a very gorgeous blonde newsreader who was actually the master of ceremonies. So I really thought I was in uh, some different world. So, so we'll play the video. Thanks, Scott. Right. So as you can see, um, I did get to... I almost got kissed by a princess, but I didn't turn into a frog. <laughs> Uh, oh, we've got frogs here. We can. <laughs> Lots of them. Uh, so, yeah, we did get eventually a lot of international recognition, which was very satisfying. To me, the most amazing one was the uh, IEEE, the Institutional Electrical Engineers yeah. that created the standard in the first place in 2016, awarded us the uh, Abukla Award, which for consumer electronics, which is uh, basically an acknowledgement of our part in creating Wi-Fi. And it's named in honour of the founder of Sony, Ibuka-san, uh, who put a, an endowment into this award. 
Now, winning these awards, I mean, it's great for you and the team, but it's great for Australia as well. I mean, you know, we didn't really have a big reputation in this space beforehand, and this catapulted us onto that world stage. So how, how has your invention led to um, investment in innovation in um, technology in general? I think it has actually had a, quite a good impact. When I was in Silicon Valley you know, doing these court cases and working with it, I met a, quite a few Australians who said, you know, you've really put us on the map, people are taking us seriously now. But it's also had a big impact in Europe. And we were able to go to a European Seventh Framework Commission meeting, which is a big mouthful. In Europe, there's no such thing as a level playing field. They fund huge research projects in the whole information, communications, technology space, um, which is a large, huge fund, billions of euros, that are bid for by European member nations. We went to one of these meetings and we put a little, a big poster up saying, you have three pieces of Australian technology in your pocket right now. You have Wi-Fi, which they had to agree because we just won the European Inventors Award. You have Google Maps. Google Maps was developed just down the road here by the Rasmussen brothers, and a company called where to go taken over by Google, and the L4 microkernel, which is a little piece of software that runs on your phone the moment you press the on button. This was developed by uh, one of my teams at NICTA and the University of New South Wales, and is in every Snapdragon process, Qualcomm processor that runs most mobile phones and iPhones. So we went there and we said, these three pieces of technology are in your pocket right now, we want to join in. So as a part of a bigger lobbying effort, Australia was now allowed to collaborate in these programs. We don't get any money because Australia doesn't contribute any money to the pool, but we get our researchers heavily involved with a large number of research projects in Europe. So it's been really good, I think, from that point of view. There's a perception, I think, in Australia that our politicians federally potentially have not invested in innovation as much as they should have, that the CSIRO's budget was cut significantly at some time. And you were telling me the story of your own next project after this was slashed as well. Yes, I mean, um, National ICT Australia, or NICTA, where I worked for 10 year, 11 years, um, had its budget removed by the Abbott government. Um, and, you know, it's just was a great thing. We were getting going. We were creating startups. We had technology going around the world. Um, some of our startup companies are still going gangbusters, but it suddenly got cut off. So this is short-term thinking. I mean, it's run its course. It's now successful. So you cut it. And just um, it drives me mad. <laughs> I mean, but I think it's it's interesting. The Australian the cultural cringe is disappearing, but it's disappearing because the younger generation coming up. The young startup mentality that you are seeing in Australia now is fantastic. You just have to point out companies like um, Atlassian, um, which is the two founders are now in Australia's rich list. They're billionaires. Right, in the Ma top Mike 10, Scott, top five in yeah, Australia's so, rich list. And that's really helped a lot. I mean, we, we started it, but those guys have really done it. And there are other companies out there, the ResMeds, Cochlea, are going gangbusters. Two more of... Um, the companies we created at NICTA, Audinate Digital Audio Networking, is now used around the world. Our new implant, medical implant company called Saluda, doing spinal implants, is about to take on the world. They're doing trials all around the world at the moment. So I think it is slowly changing. But when I look back on my career, I think of a number of times a bureaucrat or a, or a politician has told me, oh, we can't compete with Silicon Valley. And well, you won't create, create a new Silicon Valley, but you can come close and you can compete. There's no prizes for coming second. That's the basic answer in this game. And when you look at the impact the Wi-Fi invention has had here, I mean, look at the impact on healthcare, for example. Mm. That, you know, a doctor in a remote location can now communicate directly and look at films and make diagnoses. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, I think it, it's, it's part of the vision we did have. Health was one of our hotspots when we were looking at this. Wouldn't it be great if you could look at the x-rays on a tablet at the foot of the patient's bed in hospital? And, nowadays, and now they can do it, finally. Mm. In fact, it's happened a lot slower than we would have liked and that our vision had this sort of thing would be happening you know, 
15 years ago, but it's taken a while. But it, it is happening, and it's, I think it's really great. We, I have done some more projects in telehealth, and uh, one of the projects we did recently is being used a lot for of all th allied health care, which is something I didn't think of, and that's speech pathologists, exercise physiologists, uh, physiotherapy to remote communities. And a lot of that is happening now uh, remotely using what's what we laughingly call a national broadband network. I can say that now I'm not now I'm retired. I can criticise politicians well, left, right, and centre, which is great. So let's talk about the no. <laughs> we won't go into the national broadband network now. No. I mean the application. I want to talk a little bit about the future because the future is uh, everything for us, isn't it? That's why you said you were so inspired to work at the CSIRO with that team originally because you were having fun because you were focusing on the future. So what is, what's out there for us? Well, that, that's always the interesting question. What is coming next? Obviously, we are now connected. That's us. People talk about the Internet of Things as being the next big thing. I'm a li little bit wary of that because I don't really care if people can read my gas meter remotely. They don't have to come and actually look at it. They, or the, or the electricity meter. What's important is how that remote control can maybe help us, help the environment. Um, we were talking earlier, Kim, I'm absolutely horrified every time I drive through the city at eight or nine o'clock at night to see the lights on in every building in the CBD, the amount of electricity that's being burned and the wasted air conditioning, all those sort of things. So I think technology can be used to help that. And we haven't come very far in that space at all. What, why do you think that's the case? I don't because know. it makes such... Co it's common sense yeah, at I any think. level. I think one of the things we discovered very early on in our vision for wireless LANs back in the early 90s is that would, they would be used for cable replacement. And basically, you know, people were talking about wiring up the buildings and you've got these trays with lots of blue cable in them and we thought, OK, it's going to stop that happening. But it turned out it didn't. The reason being the budgets were different. This is, may, sounds very simplistic, but it was true. The building manager is responsible for um, certain parts of the building, and the IT manager is responsible for expenditure in other parts. And so the budgets are not right. So the building manager, the maintenance, the electricity budget, the operation budgets, they're all sort of, you know... Disparate, yeah, yeah. they are. They are here too. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's one of the things. It's not the holistic view as to what's happening. Uh, maybe we need a carbon price. Oh, that's radical. I didn't say that. I, l I love meeting radical men in suits, you know. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why we were not so popular in CSIRO, because we wore suits. <laughs> <laughs> so if you could, thinking back over this amazing career that you've had, if you could have done something differently, what would it have been? Well, that, that, that's the curly question. I think I would have tried to push on with the research that we were doing because we came to a solution and we stopped and we built it. As I showed it, we built it and we sold it. We didn't do the next stage of research, which was the next type of uh, wireless LAN. The, the later versions, they use our invention, but they have different add-ons. and. We didn't have the energy to do both at the same time, and so we missed out on a lot. We, and if we'd done that, the amount of royalties we would have got in on the next patent uh, would have been about a billion dollars. So that, that's a regret, but that's life. That's life. I am so proud, honoured to meet you today and to listen to you. And you and your colleagues are more than worthy of being among our 100 Australians who've helped shape the nation. Because, well, you have shaped the nation, but you've shaped the world uh, in how we communicate and what we're able to do. And uh, for somebody who started work with a telex machine in her office, <laughs> with that white paper with little dots, I'd come in every morning. But I had this inkling there was something else out there. I was telling you that one of my first jobs was working on the solo around the world yacht race in 1982-83. And they just invented these Argos satellite transponders, which was early GPS, right? Mm. 
And so we were getting this four times a day, the satellite positions of the boats, which had previously been unthinkable to get that. And so suddenly here I am with the white paper on the ground, the white ticker tape, but then being printed out on the telex machine were these latitude and longitudes. I mean, look how far that's come. I mean, you're aware of that early technology. You were tracking early GPS, weren't you? Yes, I was. I had, I think, what was the second GPS receiver in Australia at the National Measurement Lab, CSIRO, has at Linfield, and it was a box about this big, and it cost $50,000. Uh, but we used it to synchronise the atomic clocks that we had with those in the US and Europe. All right. So, yeah, and now you look at the GPS sitting in my pocket. It's, uh... And now there's that annoying woman in my car who tells me to turn right or left. It's just... <laughs> It's extraordinary where we've come from and, and how we've arrived here. And uh, I have a great deal of faith in the future. And I, I do think your comment about uh, the impact this technology can have on managing our environmental future is a big one. Of course, tomorrow is World Environment Day. Mm. And uh, it's a day when we can all think about maybe yeah. what can I, how can I adjust my behaviour a bit and collectively yeah. or write a letter to a politician or something. Uh, Maybe, maybe to those um, who are investing in innovation in our country and in encouraging them further to do that because I think there's something special down here that you don't, you know, find in other places around the world. There is something interesting, maybe because of our remoteness. Uh, it does allow us to be innovative. And if we get more backing, we can. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have questions that you'd like to ask. Terry Percival, but first, let's thank Terry for, for all his work. Thank you. Thank you. Kim, can I just finish by apologising to the museum staff, Sue and, and Claire. I was travelling around Outback New South Wales and Queensland the last week and I was kind of hard to track down. We played telephone tag a lot of times. So, but in that time, I... Uh, managed to find a bunch of cockatiels, who are my oh. favourite bird. But, Thank you. But this reminded me of my final joke for the day. Poor joke. <laughs> Very good. We'll pay that one. So do we have a question for Terry? Yes, sir. We'll give you a microphone. Thanks, Terry. Uh, I'm just interested in the in the driver, if you like, the driver of invention. And uh, you talked about a quantum change uh, of not incrementally increasing the speed, but dramatically. And then you said, oh, you're sorry that you didn't uh, progress with the invention, because then the royalties would have been a billion. So is the driver the commercial success, or is there an innate inventiveness that we experience, or is it commercially responsive? Oh, I, th I think invention is, is innate. You really just think of the what you're doing is something new, exciting. Doing something that no one else can do uh, is what really drives drives researchers. Commercial success is, is always in the back of your mind, and it's, a, it's something that comes. You don't set out to be commercially successful. You set out to try and solve a problem that no one else has solved. You know, it's like building a radio telescope. You build a better one to discover new things. You build something that goes faster. But you want to, you want to solve problems no one else knows how to solve. Um, thank you for your talk. Um, this is an MBN question, but I'll try and keep it short, which is um, can you tell us sort of one or two of the major ramifications that you foresee in sort of the medium future due to the direction that our government has gone with with the MBN? <laughs> Well, we should have another lecture on that. Uh, look, I, health and education, to me, were the big drivers with the NBN. Um, if you Google me, you might find some work we did in the early 2000s where we actually linked at gigabit per second with optical fibre a number of research institutions across Australia in health and education and media. And the fact that you don't have a ubiquitous coverage, you don't have gigabits into hospitals in Broken Hill, is really worrying me. Um, when I did work with the 
New South Wales Health Department, we built what was called the world's first virtual critical care unit. We linked Katoomba Hospital to Nepean Hospital via an optical fibre, which we managed to get in, and we had five video cameras high def running in the emergency department in Katoomba, and they were being treated from Nepean, because Katoomba's quite a small hospital. And um, New South Wales Health kicked back on that for one reason, they said, ah, but we can't do that for every hospital in New South Wales. Um, so we can't pick and choose to give it service to one hospital. And if you had an NBN which was ubiquitous, connected every little town, you could do amazing things. Education again, and um, especially early childhood education in rural New South Wales and rural Australia is a problem. The problem children, you know, it's, it's not their fault, but you know, there are children there who really have special needs. And every town does not have a speech pathologist. They don't have a behavioural psychologist that needs to do this. But if they can do that just you know, one or two hours a week, which of these children, um, and you need, that, you need that connectivity. It needs to be really, really fast, low latency, high quality to make the children pay attention. And we've done experiments on that, and it does work. But yeah, getting it ubiquitous is the real problem. Thank you for facing down the giants. That's fabulous. <laughs> Um, is the corpus of the endowment maintained? You said it had run down before the royalties went in. Is it now being maintained so that it will continue? Uh, no, it's being spent. Um, the idea is to spend it um, fairly quickly because if you don't spend it, some government department will decide you've got too much money. <laughs> so basically, and they're looking for more things, obviously, and pe people are putting more money in, but um, it's... You, you can't just have $100 million sitting there spending the interest in this day and age of economic rationalism. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much for your presentation. Very interesting. My name is Bill Bowman. 62% um, of the CSIRO's revenue comes from the Commonwealth. How do, you, how do you make the case to the government, to the federal government, for future funding of CSIRO? Is it based on sort of potential economic returns or is it based on the national interest? How do you build the case? Well, fortunately, I don't have to anymore. <laughs> I haven't been in that uh, boat for a long time. We used to basically have to do it on economic returns. Um, and the same with my previous organisation, NICTA. We used to pay money to large consultancy firms to produce reports that showed the economic impact of your research. And they come, they have these, they've shown these out. They know where to put the dollars, what you've done. And basically, that's the the only thing that's understood in Canberra, I think. And New South Wales. Yeah. And, yeah. We pay money to large consulting firms yeah. Yeah. to put business cases together yeah. to underpin every request. Yeah. Which is okay because it's your money that's being spent. <laughs> so it's got to be justified, but uh, it, it's a lengthy process, isn't yeah. it? Yes, it is. And can be very disappointing at times too. But great when you win. <laughs> Any more questions this afternoon? Yes, sir. We'll give you a microphone. Hello, Terry. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, you, I think I understand you've retired from CSIRO, but you're still active in a private area of activity or employment? No, no, I'm completely retired. Um, I've just had enough <laughs> of, of filling in government reports in particular. <laughs> But I hope not completely retired in that you're still thinking out there. I mean, your opinion matters, you know, when we hear you talk about some of these issues. And so I know you are still f operating around the edges, yeah? Yes, just around the edges, but no nothing, nothing major. Well, we're very glad that you did what you did when you were so active with the team. And it's a lovely example of like-minded people coming together and using their skills to really change the way we live. And uh, so thank you so much for joining us today. Please give Terry herself another one. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.